Blog Talk Radio. This week on Backroom Politics, as Ash Carter prepares for his confirmation as Secretary of Defense, ISIS continues its terror campaign with the brutal murder of a Jordanian pilot and a Japanese journalist. Are they winning the war for the Middle East? Will the Carter hearing be about Obama's policy or the nominee? Mitt Romney pulls out of the 2016 presidential race. What does the field look like for the chief executive today? The president issues his $3.99 trillion spending budget. What do the GOP what does the GOP have up their sleeves to counterbalance the spending outcry? And it is a lot of money. And vaccinations. The politics of vaccinations. Why have vaccinations become such an issue? That to tell me a story this week on Backroom Politics. Live from Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., this is Backroom Politics. To join the discussion, you can call toll-free 1-877-662-3713. And now, the moderator of Backroom Politics, Justin Russell. there in Radio Land. It's Tuesday, which means it's time for the best political talk show you've never heard of. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Joining me as they do every Tuesday. To my left, he is the former eight-term member of Congress representing Washington's 2nd Congressional District. He is Congressman Al Swift. Hello, Congressman. Hello, Justin. And to my 11 o'clock across the table, he is the former floor chief for then-President Gerald R. Ford. He is, or then Congressman Gerald R. Ford, he is the former Vice President of Government Affairs for the National Broadcasting Corporation. He is Bob Hines. Hi, Bob. Hello, Justin. And to my 12 o'clock, she is the former House Counsel for the Homeland Security Committee under Benny Thompson. She is the former General Counsel to the Maritime Administration as an Obama appointee. She is Denise Kraft. Hello, Denise. Hello, Justin. And to my right, on the one o'clock position, he is the former Under Secretary of Commerce who served at last count under four presidents, longtime Senate staffer and Washington Center, and a very distinguished fellow from the Stimson Center. He is the Honorable Alan Moore. Hello, Alan. Hey, Justin. And to my right, ironically, he is the longtime Democratic political operative and bar certified attorney in the great District of Columbia and the state of New York. He is. Oh, wait, wait, is it New York? Maryland. Maryland, one of the two. It's still northy here. He is Dan Lipner, Esquire. Hello, Daniel. Hey, Justin. I'm glad to be here where we run with the issues and don't pass inexplicably when we're ready to go to the end. Oh, you see, hate the game. Don't hate the player. Hey, we've got a busy show today. First, we want to get to some breaking news coming out of the Middle East. Uh, ISIS this morning posted a video which shows a Jordanian fire pilot who was captured by ISIS in country. Uh, and it shows him literally being burned alive in a cage. This comes literally within a week 
of the brutal, brutal murder by ISIS of a Japanese journalist and has set the Middle East in turmoil. At the same time, uh, the president's nominee for Secretary of Defense, Ash Carter, prepares for his confirmation hearing in the Senate for the SecDef position. The, this is a huge, huge policy issue, a huge defense issue, national security, and an international affairs issue. Let, let's first start off about talking about ISIS and the latest issue coming out of the Middle East. Uh, Alan Moore, the, the video, for those who have seen it, they, people who have seen the whole thing say it is just unwatchable. It is just so brutal uh, the way that they just murdered this human being, this fighter pilot from Jordan. It, it, this is almost an escalation of the brutality of ISIS. Is there any limit to the brutality of this organization for them to gain their Sharia law world into effect? Apparently there are no limits. Um, I don't know how you escalate from a on-camera beheading, um, but this is just another, which we saw earlier this week, same guys with the Japanese journalist, and now um, this Jordanian pilot, who the Jordanian government was prepared to do a swap uh, over, um, and it didn't happen. It's not clear why it didn't happen. Um, they're tactics of terror are designed to cause people to fear going there, engaging, reporting. Um, uh, it, it has to have, uh, at some extent, uh, a chilling effect, but it also, in, in, in many ways, deepens the resolve of those who feel victimized, and the whole world should feel victimized, to say, we will not let this stand. We will not let them take control of this. We will respond in every possible way that we can. Denise Krapp. I guess I've got a couple of questions for Alan right now. You know, in your role with, with commerce, you, you've dealt a lot with, probably dealt a lot with the Middle East. And, and what I'm thinking right now is, is the Jordanian government um, and the king is just put in a very difficult position. I mean, they are a strong U.S. ally. But they also have a very interesting population, um, Palestinian, you have uh, Lebanese, you have others. That it, it's, a, it's a very porous border. They're in a very interesting part of the world. And so I'd like to get your thoughts on how do you think the Jordanian king's going to respond? I mean, this is awful. Well, no. you know, they have, a, they, they have a few arrows in the quiver. Um, uh, it's it's not as though anyone would hesitate if they could identify exactly who the enemy was. Um, uh, w there would be no hesitation to go after them. I mean, we've got drones, and we've got we got we got fighter planes uh, filled with bombs that we're using uh, pretty regularly in both instances uh, I against ISIS. Um, but these guys are uh, they 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 show up. They disappear. They hide in the mountains. They hide in cities. Um, we would love to get our hands on the bad guys, if only the, the, the guys who are actually the perpetrators of this, if only for that odd bit of of unfortunate satisfaction one gets of, of to of over retribution. Um, I don't know what the uh, the Jordanian. Uh, uh, King Abdullah. King can do 
other than proceed down the course. Um, well, I mean, let's be honest here, Alan. The Jordanian defense forces are not exactly a weak defense force in the region. They're 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 well equipped. They, they've been well equipped by NATO allies and the United States. Uh, however, the the situation being tenuous, even for King Abdullah internally in Jordan, uh, puts the the situation as as almost uh, caught between a rock and a hard spot, if you will. It, it, it just seems to me that in, in this situation, does King Abdullah solidify his relationship with the West at the possible expense of popular support inside Jordan? Well, he's got a very powerful connection to the West, and he relies on us for, the, for, for arms, for economic aid, and for humanitarian assistance to deal with the cost of the hundreds of thousands of refugees that are, that are in Jordan. He's joined at the hip with the West from an economic uh, and military standpoint. He, he, he tries to maintain independence and distance, um, but he is, he, he's so dependent upon us that he doesn't have the liberty, even if he wanted to sever connection. There's no other direction. Right. For, for Dan Lipner, Dan Lipner, when we when we look at the situation now with Israel, uh, this obviously spins up a whole new fear inside of Tel Aviv and the leadership in the Israeli government, particularly with a hardliner hawk like Bibi Netanyahu. He's got a situation where he's got elections coming up. He's got an ISIS terror front that is literally continuing to come up with new and unique ways to terrorize not only its hostages, but those in the region. It, it, does, does Israel step up its game as a result of these latest brutal murders? Well, the complexity of Israel in Middle East politics uh, is interesting to say the least. Uh, my, my answer would be I hope not, because Netanyahu and Israel engaging it raises the, the specter of changing the dynamics of the conflict. And right now it's Muslim on Muslim war, warfare and Israel entering the fray creates a different dynamic that Israel uh, playing the role as a Western proxy in the region can change the dynamic. And right now most of the, 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 or, the organized states and I use that term loosely, in the Middle East, are pretty much united, and this includes the Syrian government, on wanting to get rid of ISIL. So Netanyahu, who has his own politics to worry about, um, but is also playing a, a, a complicated game on a bunch of different fronts. So I can only say I hope he doesn't. Congressman now. Well, it seems to me that... They're they're picking on more countries. I mean, the they, the Japanese. They've not. The more you take citizens of various countries, you you encourage stronger resistance on more countries. So the question that I have is, what what is their goal, and is there are their activities getting them any closer to that goal? I don't know what they're trying well, to it, achieve, it, it would, and I don't would, know if they're achieving it. It would, it would appear that they're, they're obviously getting their goal, you know, and this is one of the situations that will probably come up in Ash Carter's confirmation hearing. The reality is that they continue to gain ground. We, they, they lose two inches. They gain a foot. 
in different areas of that region. They're continuing to grow. activity? Yeah. Of I mean, course. I, I think from a geopolitical standpoint, burning the Jordanian pilot was an incredibly destabilizing act, and they knew what they were doing. When I, when I was asking Alan the questions, I mean, the Hashemites have been in charge of Jordan. I mean, he is a direct descendant of Muhammad. But just because he's a direct descendant doesn't mean that the people within Jordan support him. And there have been questions in the past of how strong is the Jordanian king. So if he, I mean, he's, he's taking a realpolitik look right now saying, okay, if I go against ISIL, do I have the power behind me within the people to support that? And by, by that, I mean not only the Jordanians, but the others who are living in Jordan who are the destabilizers being the Palestinians. So, so they're trying to bypass governments and leadership and all of that and, and get to the people yeah. to, to bring the pressure yeah. back onto the uh, government. It, it, they're, they're, they're going to destabilize Jordan. They've destabilized Yemen. Um, the more destabilization... Well, ISIS, ISIS didn't destabilize Yemen. Yemen was completely an internal conflict that, that of, of, a, of a revolutionary group that has come out and condemned the actions of ISIL. Yeah. You've got to be careful well, about calling but, that. All right, but I'm not going to say that ISIL did it, but they're very much aware of the destabilizing forces that are in, in play right now. I mean, you have Libya in shambles. Egypt is not doing so well. Iraq is a mess. Afghanistan... <clears throat> is a mess, and as long as you do not have strong leaders, there's a power vacuum, and what they're trying to do is turn that power vacuum into their own benefit. Well, were they trying to destabilize Japan? No, Japan is dependent on oil. That's what they're, that's their weakness on this one, and they know that there's only so well, much... Now, well, well, hold on. I, I, ISIS came out in, in several videos where they, when they captured the Japanese journalists, there, it wasn't the, the, the oil dependency, it was the Japanese funding and Japanese uh, uh, technical and, and logistical support of actions in Iraq, the Middle East, that they backed the Western governments and the Western allies. And that's going to be a bigger problem because under the Japanese constitution that was created post-World War II, the Japanese government, or the constitution said Japan could not have a standing army army that could be deployed outside. They also had some significant um, restrictions placed on guns. Now, and as a result, Japan has traditionally funded wars. And so when you talk about the, the, uh, the first Persian Gulf War in uh, or sorry, 90, 91, they spent millions of dollars. When the second war started in 2001, it was money, less manpower. That role is changing, and that's even creating more tensions with Japan, because in addition to not being able to protect their own people because they're paying for it, they've still got China. So it, it, it's going to be a ripple effect people are going to look at. Dan, Dan when, when, we, when we look at the situation here in, in, in the ISIS-controlled territories, um, there's still now pressure, and this ties into what will probably happen in the Senate confirmation hearing with uh, nominee Ash Carter. Ash Carter is going to have to defend what many call a failed policy from a defense standpoint, from a national security standpoint, and even from an intelligence standpoint that the Obama administration has put forward in dealing with ISIS. Is this a winnable argument for him? Um, 
the answer is no, but the more correct answer is nobody has a has a winning argument in this situation. You have nothing but bad choices. Um, so the administration, after witnessing uh, the aftermath and working through the aftermath of two its arguably failed war efforts in Afghanistan and Iraq that helped create the situation and the war weariness in our our dom domestically for our, our, our American population. And then having the choice of using air power, boots on the ground, or withdrawing entirely, which are basically the only options we have. There's no intelligence available on the, no substantive intelligence truly available on the ground. And as has been mentioned, uh, because of the nature of the group, that it is not a, while there is some organization to it, it's not the traditional organized standing army. So there are no good options. So the question is, do we want to go in, and if so, how much and how? And there is no good answer Bob, to that. Bob Hines, it, it would seem to me, and a lot of critics of the Obama policies involving ISIS and largely foreign policy in the region, have said that if there has never been a time for boots on the ground, it's now. However, you're dealing with a an armed forces situation where they've been stretched already to capacity and they're still talking about more budget cuts. How do you balance this? I don't know. To be honest with you, I don't know. It's We're sitting here talking about it and, it, and it, there is no good answer. I mean, Dan's exactly right. There are no good answers here. And obviously uh, the, the president is, is, I think, still trying to find a way to, to be effective, but I don't see him, I don't see him uh, finding it very quickly. He's, he's just not getting it. Alan, Alan Moore, when is Ash Carter going in front of the Senate right now, couldn't have picked a worse time, especially with the escalation of operations within ISIS uh, and the destabilization of some possible allies in the region, uh, is this more a matter of Ash Carter trying to defend the Obama administration, or can this really be a hearing about Ash Carter's ability to lead the Defense Department? Well, first of all, he's going to be confirmed unless there's something that comes out that we haven't heard before. He has he has a lot of respect on both sides of the aisle, and it's not as though there's some great, fabulous candidate sitting out there who, who could be brought forward if, if Carter ran into a problem. Secondly, Carter's been gone for about six months. That doesn't mean that he wasn't involved as the Deputy Secretary of Defense in a lot of decisions, some of which involvement was, as we learned from uh, Leon Panetta's book, uh, that the two of them uh, were pretty active in opposing the plan for pulling out of Iraq the way they did. Now. That doesn't mean that Carter is going to go there and, and, and trash his president. These are all hard decisions. There's no easy, clear, obvious right answer, and uh, you can't take politics out of it. But even if you could, these are still hard decisions that, that reasonable people can disagree on. This is not such a bad time for him. It Maybe it's because we have a higher sense of concern, fear, drama, it may be that geez, is it, is it a situation a secretary. We don't want to string this out. But is this a situation? Charge, is this a situation where the bar is so low that 
all he can do is possibly thrive in this committee hearing and get resounding support no, from both sides not, of the aisle? He doesn't get a free pass by any stretch. No, not, not at all. And the best chance to raise questions about the administration, not over ISIS per se, but over over our failed red line in Syria and what we are and are not doing in in uh, in the Ukraine um, and and our, our, the the aftermath of of getting out of Iraq and how that fed the uh, in some ways the uh, the elevation of ISIS those are all legitimate issues that he will be asked to comment on and and he's a pro he's been around he's not going to. Do his, do his advisors do his advisors recommend to him stating the obvious that this may be a situation for boots on the ground, or does he keep off that third rail? I think he says, look, I'm not in the I'm not in the job yet, and there's probably a line that that he does not he does not at this point see a need for boots on the ground. That could change, and, but, and once he's in, assuming he is confirmed. He will have the benefit of all the most up-to-date information, and he will be able to come back to the Congress with with his recommendation. Much as some of the Joint Chiefs have said, if I think we need combat troops, then I will say so. I do not see a need for them yet. It wouldn't surprise me if he has some variation of that answer at this point in time. But, Dan Lipner, one of the things that came out uh, just today in our, through our friends from Politico, it's being reported that uh, Robert Gates has pretty much said, and I'm paraphrasing, I'm not quoting, that, that this, this is a very destabilized situation and that we, in fact, stand a chance of not being able to completely eliminate ISIS as a whole. Does that hurt uh, the Obama administration and Ash Carter in uh, in the hearing coming up, where in fact one of the architects of what should have been a proactive policy in the region comes out and says we're not going to be able to win this. Well, two things. First, I want to respond to one thing that Alan said. The failed red line was not a failed red line. It was actually a stumbled upon success. When the goal was to remove the chemical weapons from Syria, that was a success. A stumbled upon success, but a success nonetheless. As far as to your point, the the being proactive, I'm tired of people saying being proactive in the Mideast. You can't. Each time you think you're going to pull a thread, uh, something else comes, comes unraveled. It is a mistaken approach. The only person who really had a, a clear grasp of the Middle East is George Herbert Rocker Bush, who saw that the, the balancing act that it was there and being too far into to the weeds there created a mess that you couldn't possibly imagine that we saw when when 43 was in office. Right, but I, I can remember the argument that we should have gone farther in. I mean, I remember that war of, of 90 and 91. I mean, that was a long August. I mean, we built up 500,000 troops to save Kuwait. And the question is, why didn't we take Saddam out at that time? Because Iran, and we saw exactly that. Well, Iran saw the opportunity because of the, the, the balance in the region, and lo and behold, we just saw that 20 years later. As somebody, as somebody who served in that war, a lot of the people, a lot of the soldiers, a lot of the sailors, a lot of the airmen that were under General Schwarzkopf's uh, command in theater, uh, as well as under the command of 
uh, General Colin Powell as chairman of the Joint Chiefs, uh, the recommendations were clear, and, and Bush was very smart about it. Why are we going to risk losing more lives going into Baghdad? Why we had a mission, the mission was clear and cut when we said we are there to evacuate Iraq forces from Kuwait. The second that was done, the war was over and we continued on by providing security in the area. But going into Baghdad was largely a unforeseen, unrecognizable mission that, quite frankly, could have cost more lives and escalated the region into a bigger problem. There's a parallel with that, with Harry Truman catching all kinds of hell for not uh, going into China. He fired General MacArthur over that. And I think most historians figure that that was the right thing to do then. Uh, I happen to think that it was the right thing for uh, the first President Bush to do to carry out what he set as a goal and then stop. I mean, Patton wanted to go into Russia. Yeah. I mean, there is no shortage of people saying, if we had just gone further, this would have changed things. But we had the allies. We had the allies. We had the allies in World War II. We had the allies in South Korea. We had the allies at the end, at the end of uh, the Vietnam conflict. But there's no reason to think that kind of destabilization that we are watching in the region now wouldn't have just been moved up 20 years. The folks there haven't <laughs> changed. The issues haven't changed. Yeah, the, 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 you're, you're correct with the Allied forces, but. And we're back here live at Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Technical. We were dead for a while. We were dead for about 10 minutes. Well, we solved everything during the break. We did solve everything during the break. Hey, uh, well, we don't have time to tell you what the solution is. No, we know, and you don't even want to know what the solution is. Hey, let's let's change uh, let's change a little bit, and I want to talk a little 2016 politics. Uh, last Friday, Mitt Romney in a presser and a uh, uh, which followed a phone call to large money donors uh, to Mitt Romney's possible 2016 campaign, announced unexpectedly that he will not be seeking the nomination for the presidency in 2016. Uh, this leaves a huge, huge free-for-all in the GOP. Uh, a lot of people, include, a lot of people in this town, obviously saying they counted on Mitt Romney running as a GOP candidate uh, in 16. The reality now is this puts a more of a spotlight on people like Jeb Bush, Chris Christie, even some dark horses like Ted Cruz, Rand Paul, uh, even people like uh, 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 Senator uh, Rob Portman out of Ohio. Uh, and Scott Walker out yeah, of Scott Wisconsin. Scott Walker got the big news out of the weekend. We're, we're going to talk about that, too. Uh, along those lines, Scott Walker made some pretty big inroads over the weekend that makes it look like he might be a viable candidate for presidency. Uh, Bob Hines. Uh, I was talking with a uh, Republican governor here at Shelley's over the weekend, and he was telling me he fully expects that uh, – uh, Scott Walker will announce a run for 2016. He's got the infrastructure. He's got the people geared up. It sounds like it's just a formality now. Is that a smart move for Scott Walker? 
who wants to be president, it's a very smart move. <laughs> <laughs> Announce you're running if you yeah. want to. Yeah. Well, I think I think he is the kind of a, a candidate that would, would, I think, garner a lot of support. An attractive guy. He is he is he is winning in a a, a, a state that is not necessarily Republican. And he's won three elections in the last uh, four years, I think, up there. So he has got to be a, a pretty serious candidate. And he is, I think, uh, I think he is in the mainstream, moderate, not uh, to the right of the, not, not one of the Tea Party type people. He's a really good guy. But, but Alan Moore, when we look at, uh, when we look at Scott Walker, Scott Walker's got a lot of baggage also on his plate. He's got the fact that he doesn't have a bachelor's degree. He's got the fact that he's still fighting some questionable funding aspects for his initial governor's run. Plus, you have the public employees union situation that is going to rile up Democrats against him. Uh, Is Scott Walker viable? Does this country elect somebody without a bachelor's degree? Why not? Why not? You know, it, it, <laughs> last time I looked, Bill Gates didn't have a uh, uh, a bachelor's degree. Bill Gates is also not, not running for president. I but I but I have no doubt that he uh, enjoys enormous uh, popular support, and no one is holding it against him that he doesn't have a bachelor's degree. Um, and and there 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 are other folks along the way. I don't think they say, "Gee, he doesn't have a bachelor's degree. How could he be a good president?" We've we've elected a lot of people with 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 really impressive degrees who've not been great presidents. Like like degrees from Harvard. Like you know fancy schools. Like Harvard. Yeah, Harvard. There there we go. Yeah. <laughs> Harvard, Yale. Harvard and Yale. Joining us yeah. around the table, and coming in for schools. this. Joining us around the table, he is our regular. He's the former executive director of the Democratic Party of Maryland, longtime political operative, Carl Tubin. Carl, uh, when when you hear when you hear about Mitt Romney pulling out, and you hear about Scott Walker really making a surge right now to get him juxtapositioned for a possible run in 2016, that's going to make Democrats real happy. I'm not sure whether we're real happy or real sad. I think uh, <clears throat> I think we feel that we have a candidate who who is superior to uh, what we see in the field right now. And uh, uh, Scott Walker has uh, alienated a lot of people in the labor movement, which means that labor would work doubly hard, or maybe triple triply hard, uh, in order to beat him and and uh, end his for election victory a surge, uh, you'll have to realize that once he, if he is nominated and elected president, he can't run again for four years. He won't be able to run uh, in, in uh, one year or two years, same like he's done because of what happened in Wisconsin. Dan Lipner? Let's not forget, Sarah Palin's also floated she might run. So uh, that's, uh, <laughs> but, but oh, that's scary. Well, I, I'm, we're talking about credible presidential no, candidates. But, but in all seriousness, Scott Walker actually is an interesting candidate that, that popped in. So I've been saying for a while that the there, there there is a working class frustration base in both the Democrat and Republican parties that uh, neither Hillary Clinton nor Jeb Bush speak to. And while Jeb Bush supposedly elbowed Mitt Romney out, and Mitt Romney threw a punch while going out the door at Jeb Bush, um, there is this undercurrent of the we want something else that people talking to 
are working class issues. And while Scott Walker does have problems, he also has that narrative. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Isn't it, isn't Congressman it, Al Swift? Isn't it really? Isn't Jeb Bush the front runner? Uh, isn't Jeb Bush the one you got to get out of this if you have any hope? Probably. Even including uh, Chris Christie. He, he's the establishment front runner, but as far as the, the popular support, I mean, I'm looking at a poll right now that has Scott Walker with a a, a tight lead in Iowa. And as we know. Now, by the way, by the way, we've since found out that that was an internal polling. And let's be honest, I can make polls say I'm a front runner in Iowa. I mean, internal polling is just that, internal polling. Alan Moore. I think Al is absolutely right that, that Jeb Bush is the one to beat right now because he's got very high name recognition and access to enormous amounts of money. Um, that doesn't mean he's got it tied up, but he's certainly the guy. For last week, Romney and Bush both have enjoyed a lot of name recognition and both enjoyed the presumed ability to raise a lot of money. And there was, and, and Romney did have a following that was, gee, what if? Um, but Romney, uh, I don't think he was pushed out by Jeb Bush. I think he sized up everything, including with the help of his wife and sons, and said, you know, been there, done that can't bring myself to have the energy, focus, enthusiasm that I know I need if I'm to succeed because it's not going to be a cakewalk for me. And and I don't think he got out because Jeb pushed him out or because he thought, oh, Jeb Bush has got this tied up. Jeb Bush is a is a is a formidable opponent. But this is a this is a very open uh, race not so open that Sarah, there's room for Sarah Palin, but 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 open. Is for, it is it open enough? A number of people, including the senators that were mentioned, um, John Kasich, the governor of Ohio, is is a is another guy who's who's interesting, not being talked about at the moment, but his name pops up a little bit. Um, there are there are a few others. Mike Huckabee. I mean Bob Hines. Uh, I don't think Huckabee is is got the. Uh, I don't think he's got the money-raising ability that these other guys have. He's got some appeal. Dan Lipner, you disagree? No, I mean, it's, I mean, from just the sport of politics and watching, the, the Republican Party has different parts to it. You have the establishment base, which is the Jeb Bush, Chris Christie, uh, the folks, and, well, Chris Christie initially looked like the big winner with uh, with Romney pulling out. But with with other moves that have been made, including Chris Christie's slight fumble in his in his trip to England, um, you have other movements. I mean, you, the the evangelical portion of the Republican Party cannot be overlooked, and the Tea Party folks, while they have been quiet of recent, they also can't be dismissed, especially since they can c- control the infrastructure in Iowa. But I mean, there, there are different parts at play here. But Bob Hines, along those lines, Rand Paul went to a uh, a function that was hosted by the Koch brothers, and reports coming out of that function was he literally bombed it, uh, did not get a good reception, did not rally the crowd in his favor. Uh, in fact, uh, some media reports saying that people who might have been supportive of his run for president after the Koch brothers' event 
now say we don't think he's one of us. Is that is is that something that maybe Jeb Bush or even a Rob Portman could be or Scott Walker could be excited to hear? Well, yeah, I would think so. He'd be excited to hear that. But you know, again, it's early. It's awfully early. Jeb Bush was not invited to the event, by the way. That's also yeah. worth noting. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's Carl Tubin. <clears throat> Jeb Bush evidently had two uh, negatives. One, uh, his stand on immigration, <clears throat> and two, his, uh, his uh, working with Common Core for uh, education. And uh, I, I think that one of the reasons why he is not hot, well, he was high in the polls, he was, I think, second in the polls, but um, we don't. We really won't know until we get some public polls as to where Scott Walker is. And I think that because of the fact that he he is kind of playing around and, and raising the money, but he hasn't really been out there campaigning. In in, in defense, uh, one of the one of the things that uh, our colleague Dan Lettner pointed out uh, the the latest poll that he cited was one done by the Des Moines Register. So that that's a brand new set of numbers that are very, very recent. Denise Krupp, you had a thought. Jeff Bush's tie to Common Core is going to get him into trouble. Um, I can say as the mother of two kids, one being seven and the other being ten, that Common Core has now driven us so low that my daughter's fifth grade class is spending the entire week out of the school so that the 6th and 7th and 8th graders can take tests and not be disturbed. So for an entire week, she's going to the museum and she's going to Port Discovery. We, if it gotten so bad that we are worried about the test, Common Core test, that we are sending our children to playgrounds? This is what? ridiculous. They're not learning for an entire week so that somebody else's kids can take a test. But, Alan, more Common Core is a very big rallying cry for those calling for education reform in the GOP. Does that get him into trouble with his base? You know, these issues are going to sort out. We had no child left behind. Then it morphed into, into Common Core. We have a lot of people who don't understand what it means. Denise at least brings the helpful insight of what it can mean on the ground for families. The but the... But but the heart of it, the core, if you will, of this whole issue ah, is, fun. Is, nice. is to what extent we want to require minimum standards, measurable and objective tests of students nationwide. It's really hard to do, it turns out. And the more you push towards uh, measuring student achievement and tying uh, compensation of teachers to it, the more they're going to teach to the tests. And we're realizing, you know, that's not exactly the outcome we're looking for either. This is an evolving uh, thing, the, the question of curricula, curricula statewide, nationwide. If, if I don't know, I don't remember the history of, of Bush when he was, when he was governor, but I, my hunch is on this issue, he's far enough removed from actually having to make real decisions in the state of Florida that he has ample ability to dodge, to dodge the the, the common core bullish curricula issue. Governor, when Common Core was put into place, that was still um, some of the no child left behind. That that was part of that. But his support is what's going to drive those of us who have children batting. Well, I mean, my child knows how to fill in a dot. 
That is wonderful. What I really wanted to learn is about the American Constitution. And I say that as a Democrat, saying we shouldn't be dumbing down our students so they can fill in a score sheet. Dan Lipner. Well, actually, to Jeb Bush's defense, which is going to be incredible that I'm saying that, but as far he's actually spoken to the Common Core issues, and I didn't know this, at least according to him, his statements are that the Common Core, at its initial incarnation, was just designed to talk about reading and math. Yeah. That's it. Right. And since then, it has grown into a education to the test, an education monster covering multiple disciplines, and where a central authority does not place well. And this is the same problem that No Child Left Behind left because of the incentives for the testing on teachers and administration. All right, but let's, let's, get, back, let, let's get back to, to the 2016 race because, you know, when we look, we, we talk about the Republicans, the Democrats themselves have a couple of issues that they have to deal with. One of them is the presumed front runner still has yet to make any wild uh, announcements that's saying that she, in fact, is in play. Go ahead, Carl Tubin. Well, they're, they're now talking... Uh, about having a headquarters in New York, either the city or Scarsdale, uh, <clears throat> um, and then they um, they are talking about formal committee, sort of in April, and maybe an announcement uh, in, in July. Um, but that's still that's still in in my book still puts her against the curve a little bit in. What could be a race where we're hearing names like Cuomo, we're hearing uh, names like Warren, uh, and a few other dark horses that uh, could be viable. I don't think I don't think maybe, I don't think Cuomo will run. Uh, <clears throat> why not? The governor of Maryland. Governor Martin O'Malley is another name, but why not? Why not Andrew Cuomo? I don't think I don't think he's going to do it at this point. And I don't think Elizabeth Warren is going to do it. I think she, she, I think she stretched Hillary Clinton, and and hopefully we have to talk her into coming to 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 getting I mean, away from uh, Wall Street. And and Martin O'Malley is is not going anywhere. Dan Lipner, I mean, you've been around Democrats uh, and Democratic campaigns as a political operator for many years. Uh, if you're Andrew Cuomo and you start hearing reverberations through both parties that we need some sort of change, we, we're tired of seeing the, the Bush-Clinton race version 3.0, at what point do we finally get new blood injected into either side? Well, that's actually part of the math. And looking back to 2000, when we had more or less a coronation of Al Gore, uh, who was then very flat-footed uh, when it came to the general election, any candidate is, is best served by actually having to run for the nomination. So even if Andrew Cuomo doesn't expect to get the nomination, and I'm going to say something that is still heresy in Democratic politics, I don't think Bill Clinton was running to be president back in 92. I think he was running to be vice president under Andrew Cuomo. But when, uh, Mario, under, Mario, Mario, under Mario Cuomo. But then when Mario Cuomo didn't chose not to run, it was an entirely open field. That said, heaven, if Hillary Clinton chooses not to run, this is an entirely different map. And so having Andrew Cuomo at least do the basics of running, because you never know what's going to happen. As Alan has said many times, that 
there are mysteries that happen in politics and in campaigns, and you never know what could happen. I mean, Ben Carson is on CNN right now. Well, I don't think he has a has any chance at all of getting the Republican nomination. Strange things happen. So we elected a second term senator out of Illinois president twice. First term senator. First term senator. You're right. I'm sorry. <laughs> first-term senator of Illinois, Denise Krupp. I agree with Dan. I mean, you need a bit of a bruising fight. I mean, you want all of the dirty stuff to come out first. And by waiting as long as she is waiting, she's kind of sucking the air as far as nobody's going to lay down a dime because they're not going to want to spend the money right now. They want to wait to see where the best, you know, where the money is going to be spent. They also want to make sure they don't frustrate and get upset, with, or you know, she, they don't want to upset her if she is going to be the primary person. But by not running, we're—it's not a race. I, I mean, we don't. There isn't a coronation in our country. You know, we fought the British many years ago because we didn't want to say you're king just because you're king. I think within the Democratic Party, we owe it to ourselves to start figuring out: Does Miss Clinton represent everybody in the party? I don't think she does. I think there are folks, as you just talked in, but in the middle class, and I think there are others as part of our party that are not being currently represented and that do deserve a voice at the table. And, well, at the same time, Congressman Al, Hillary's still got a lot of baggage. You still have the situation with Benghazi hanging out there. There's still a lot of turmoil around her involvement in something as old political school as Whitewater. Uh, and and other little facets. Her age is a factor, obviously. It, it, it almost seems like the, the the deck is stacked against her making a run. But Hillary said this has been her dream for all her life. Well, I remember a, a candidate in my state, Mike Lowry, who was uh, by far the most liberal. Uh, viable candidate and he was so strong in the primary that he would preempt other people from coming and then he would get the nomination and he'd lose uh, I, I, I think she's preempting a lot of people and she needs to get in or get out and she shouldn't be waiting until summer to do that uh, because uh, I think she she's got nothing she's got nothing to gain and everything to lose by dawdling around. She's got to start uh, speaking to some of the issues that uh, middle class, for example, uh, and, and what they're going to do there. So I, I'm I I think she's playing a, a very dangerous game from her standpoint and an unhelpful game for the Democratic Party. And Dan Lipner, the one name we, 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 we heard early on, and, and all indications are he hasn't changed his mind, but is Joe Biden? Is Joe Biden viable at this point? Uh, well, it's still less of the question is on viability than whether or not he's going to do it. And Biden um, has a couple other things going, and I actually have a, a relationship. I worked for Biden uh, in Iowa in 07, um, and so what happened there with the uh, Clinton and Obama campaign um, and Biden has the genuine interest uh, in, in running without question. Um, and it would be his third run for president. And he is legitimate candidate. That said, he also has to deal with 
not only uh, he has a similar age issue, uh, he has a new family scandal that is at play that he'll have to wade through. He might not want to put his family through that as well. Um, so there, there are some other questions there. However, he is also a person that believes in the conversation. And if nobody, credi nobody else credible enters the campaign, uh, Bernie Sanders has mentioned he's going, probably going to run. Uh, Jim Webb has, has already has a website up that he's planning on running. Um, I suspect Biden would run if only to make sure that the nomination is contested because he's that kind of guy. Carl Tubin. Well, I don't think. I think that what he's going to do is he's going to he's going to wait to see. If, if Hillary implodes, if Hillary implodes, then he would jump in the race uh, uh, instantly. Instantly. <clears throat> what were the problems with with him in the earlier race was that he would not call people to raise money, and he had he, he might have gone further in the other race, but who knows? It's uh, water, water uh, under, the, under the dam or whatever, over the dam. You know, I, I don't, with, with regard to Hillary, I, you know, I have been the skeptic as to whether she would get into the race at all. Um, I have to say that, you know, the odds continue to, to, to look up more, more like she'll get in than she won't. But I'm, not, I'm still not convinced that she's in. Um, which, which in some ways speaks to, to, to Al's issue. What's she waiting for? Well, if she's not going to get in, but she hasn't decided yet, I, I think she really has not decided. I think that's part of what's happening here. Um, she's got to be leaning in one way or the other, but you know, she probably one day is feeling good. The next day, she's not feeling as good. The next day, she's thinking, hearing this about about her husband, and that's part of her baggage. And then she's agreed to go back to the Hill and talk about Benghazi. Um, I don't see her imploding if she's in, but it, 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 it's, I'm still not convinced that she's in. If she's not in, watch out. Then they, then they all jump in. Carl and, Tubin. Well, <clears throat> you, know, you talk about money. <clears throat> there are two groups raising money for Hillary. One is this group ready for Hillary, and the other is a pack um, run by... Uh, Jim McKenna, former White House staff, who is also raising money for Hillary. So uh, the money, the money will be raised uh, no matter if she gets in now, or six months from now, or a year from now. There'll be plenty of money uh, for her in this race. I agree. I would only say they're poised to raise the money. They probably got commitments for the money. They're not raising it because there's no place to put it. Right. The, no, super pack, the super packs are raising yeah. it. That's, yeah. that's true. I'm ready for Hillary. Yeah. Yeah. You, you know, it, it, you have to woo the voters. I mean, you cannot make the assumption that the voter is going to show up on election day. If you do not grab the voter, and I mean, at this point in time, truly grab the voter, he or she's not going to be there. So the longer she waffles, the more people are saying, well, does she want to do this? Does she not want to do this? Why should I come out and support her? What worries me is not so much that as it is that she's freezing everybody else yeah. out. Right. And the longer she does that, the shorter, <laughs> if she doesn't run, the shorter the time that anybody else has to try and, and gain the prominence, while the Republicans will be over high profile, uh, duking out their 
side, and their candidates will be much better known uh, and will have had a chance to lay some groundwork. And by the way, uh, CNN, breaking news coming out of CNN, apparently in a statement made by King Abdullah II of Jordan, Jordan now is vowing revenge after the ISIS murder of their fighter pilot uh, in a in a horrible, horrible burning alive in a cage incident that happened inside ISIL-controlled territory. Uh, we're going to keep our eyes on that. That could spark a whole new level of military assertiveness against ISIS in the region. We'll keep our eyes on that. Hey, we're uh, going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the president putting up his four trillion or three point nine 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 trillion dollar spending budget for the federal government. It's going to be a fight on the Hill. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We will be back in four minutes. Stay with us. You know, here on Backroom Politics, you hear us order drinks uh, during happy hour, the second hour of Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio. But what you don't understand is the quality of the drink that we're getting here at Shelley's Backroom. 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Backroom Politics premier sponsor. Hey, you got Dave Hammerly and the bar crew there at Shelly's Backroom that really know how to pour a drink. Whether it's something simple like my on-air Jack Daniels on the rocks with a splash of water, or whether it's something elaborate like what has to be the best martini in the District of Columbia for Congressman Al Swift. Wine selection, scotch selection that will blow your mind. They've got Highland scotches. They've got Island Sky scotches, blended, single malt, anything you want. Port wines to go with that great cigar from the great humidor. Down here at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Come on down, have a drink, and make some new friends. Or heck, just come on down and listen to Backroom Politics on Tuesdays.
that one more once. Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is the best political talk show that you've never heard of. It's Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio. Uh, we're going to change gears a little bit and talk about the president's budget, which he announced here fairly recently. Uh, the president has put forward a $4 trillion budget that calls for various tax increase measures. It also includes a 4.5% increase in military spending, and a lot of Republicans are saying that there's not a lot of compromise to be had in the president's budget proposal. Uh, the reality is it's a it's a big, big federal de- deficit spending bill uh, at a time when the deficit continues to rise. Uh, Alan Moore, start with you. This this budget's already gaining a lot of criticism from the GOP, obviously, but there's also some in the president's own party that are saying that this is a little bit too much at a time where we have to look at a little bit of austerity to move forward. As long as it's not mindless austerity, right? Mm-hmm. That was that was that, that line intrigued me. He said, "Enough of this mindless austerity." Um, I don't see much austerity. In the budget, the mindless fine. We can we've all criticized sequestration, except for the fact that it really did have an impact, disparate and in some times problematic in in reducing spending, which has been one of the keys to to the improved economy. The, the president is required to send up a budget. He put it together. He sent it up. And he 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 was on time this time. The, the the big beef from most Republicans is same old same old. It happened to come out on Groundhog Day, so lots of Groundhog Day jokes. Gee, this feels like Groundhog Day. Same old uh, tax and spend, tax and spend. There's some new things in here. Uh, some some new tax ideas. Some emphasis on spending. Um, we're we're talking around the margins. Remember, one of the he's he is trying to find some things that might have some appeal to Republicans, like well, not just the Republicans, but he sees a need for it. Thirty-eight billion dollar increase in in uh, in Pentagon spending. That's his number. Um, but he says you're going to get that, but you're going to have an equal amount for domestic spending, um, and then you pay for it with with uh, a variety of tax ideas that. Some of which have some appeal to different people. A lot of which, uh, you know, some of which are, are 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 quite offensive. What he did not do, and we talked about this last week in discussing the State of the Union, um, he just has given up basically on the budget, on the debt, um, on on taking on the entitlements. Once upon a time, just two years ago and before. He included in his budget a change in the in the cost of living measure that that's used to increase benefits for for Social Security, and also affects the the tax code 
He dropped it last year. It's there's no mention of it now. There's no more uh, significant acknowledgement about the, the 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 problem of of accumulated debt. Al talked last week about how he used to say, "Do you guys realize how much we're spending on interest on on the debt?" The, the, the one irony, the biggest significant contributor to the good news on the deficit in the last two years is we were way, way under in what we thought we would have to pay on interest. Interest rates have stayed so low because the U.S.'s economy is better than everybody else's that we're spending about $230 billion a year on interest, and we thought by now we'd be spending about $800 billion on interest. But we were wrong in our guesses. But, Dan Lipner, when you look at the budget being put forward by the president and the administration, uh, the OMB estimates <laughs> internal to the administration say that this is a 6.4% increase over last year's spending bill, uh, and that basically $478 billion of this is going to be deficit spending tapped onto an already out-of-control spending habit by the federal government as a whole, GOP and Dems included. Well, that's why it'll be interesting to see the power of the purse string that is entirely in Republican hands at the moment. So it's, it's going to be interesting to see. Uh, the Republicans have the ability, if they want to take this stuff seriously, both to cut and raise revenue, even though raising revenue is entirely left off the options list for the Republican Congress. But we'll see what they choose to do. And I suspect there will be no increase in, in, in revenue proposed on the Republican side, and the the sacred cow of Pentagon spending will be ignored entirely for the deficit spending side. By the way, uh, more breaking news coming out of Washington. CNN and AP are reporting that uh, Jordan's King Abdullah is, in fact, on his way to the White House for a private discussion with the president. We're going to keep our eye on those developments there could be something huge coming out of that meeting, I would anticipate. Uh, that being said, when we go back and we look at the budget here, Denise Krepp, uh, it, it, the president talked about the middle class. The president talked about the economic disparity in America right now. Uh, yet he does come back and talk about some austerity measures but nothing in the president's budget, according to some GOP critics, say that he's done anything to truly revamp the tax code going forward in his budget plan. Uh, can the president truly work with Congress without having some sort of tax reform in there and not compound more taxes on business? Well, look, you're going to have to do tax reform, but the question I have is I couldn't believe he did it. He went after all the offshore money so that we could pay for uh, infrastructure at the Department of Transportation. That was mind-boggling. I mean, we all know we need transportation we think, you know, and, and upgrades. We need our roads. But you pick somebody that's going to just watch you and say, go away. I mean, there was a hoorah last year when, what was it, Burger King and Tim Horton, you know, something about offshoring and in Canada, and how are we going to do that? And they, and they successfully fought it off. They're going to fight it off again. Why Why would you try to finance infrastructure off the backs of the offshore money? They're not going to come home. They don't want to. Dan Lipner? Well, but that's because that's the fight that needs to be fought. And it, it'll be interesting to see if, if the White House 
keeps a spine on the fight, which this president has not shown anything uh, of like that in six years of presidency. JP Morgan. It's not going to happen. That, but wait a minute, but wait a minute, the president did include, the president did include in this budget uh, about $50 billion in new taxes on financial firms, which isn't going to make him very popular on Wall Street. Bob Hines, at the same time, uh, the president's got another slightly off budget, but a Homeland Security spending deal that was defeated in the Senate today by a filibuster vote. Uh, it seems to me that the money is going to be the crux of Obama's problem going into this budget debate and going into the latter terms of his lame duck presidency. I agree. I think it's going to be a problem. And, you know, he is, uh, his budget is really huge. And the taxes he's, uh, he's adding, he's, uh, he's offering, I think are, there. I think there's going to be a real stink. I think very quickly we're going to see a uh, you know a big fight about what he's trying to do. Alan Moore. Yeah, I, I was I was interest I was intrigued with what he proposed in terms of repatriating profits only because there's an element of cleverness to it that I hadn't thought about. He companies now leave profits offshore. These are U.S. companies that earn the money overseas, leave it there. Don't bring it back until they need it here, because if they do bring it back, it'll be subject to a 35% maximum tax rate. So why not let it continue to accumulate, maybe earn some additional money overseas? It's almost like an IRA uh, for individuals. But what he's suggesting is, and this is what's interesting, and it's two pieces. He says, from here, from going forward, here and forward, what I want to do is just start taxing it at a 19% rate, whether it's brought back or not. But in the first year, I want to just tax it at 14% as it comes back. All the $2 trillion that's over there, I'll tax it, period. It'll come back, and we're going to take that $250 billion that we're talking about and do what? Oh, we're going to cram that into the, to the infrastructure, highway trust fund, and other stuff. It, it's it's this odd connection. But, I, I mean, I think that connection in, in its own right is bizarre. He couldn't bring himself to, to raise the gas tax, which actually has some logical connection to infrastructure. But what I was intrigued with is to try to get this money back, he would love to say, You're gonna, we're going to take this. Period. We're going to take 14% of it, bring it back. In the future, any accumulated, further accumulated earnings, we're going to start taxing at 19% a year. The, the, the problem this will create, one of the problems is it will encourage more companies to say, you know something, that pushes us over the edge. We will do what Burger King did, and they did it. We will set up ourselves offshore. And and uh but it's very interesting as a notion this you don't get a choice. This is what we're gonna do. Now of course it has to pass the Congress right. and there's not a lot of momentum behind it, but it was an intriguing little plan. Congressman Al first of all, let's remember that every president's budget 
is not something that anybody expects to be voted up or down as is. A budget is a starting point. This has got a whole bunch of new ideas in it. <clears throat> and I think the challenge to the Republicans is, do they have any new ideas? Uh, I, I simply have never understood how we're going to deal with anything if we don't have some revenue. And uh, the, the Republicans seem to think that you can do miracles by, and, and still not raise taxes. But Bob, Bob Hines, one of the new ideas, going off of what uh, Congressman Al was looking at, though, but one of the new ideas that they are talking about now is this new term, demographic bubble. Which deals with the uh, which deals with the re, the retiring boomers over the next 20 years and the impact it's going to have on non-discretionary spending, Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, etc. Uh, according to uh, OMB chief Sean Donovan, quote: If we can get through that period with debt stabilized and on a declining path, we put the nation in a much better position. Seems to me like Sean Donovan's living in a dream world right now with the deficit spending increases that the president put forward in the budget document he submitted. I think you're right. I think it's exactly what's going to happen. Right, but we're growing the debt, but at the same time, what Al said was right as well, which is he's got to have revenue. And we are, we are not bringing revenue in. And if you don't bring dollars in and you keep spending more than you have, then we're going to have a deficit. But, the pre but Denise, the president had an opportunity to literally show new creative ways to generate revenue, whether it's through onshoring, whether it's through gas tax hike, whether it's through several other programs that he could have found revenue generation, increased enforcement in, in tax, uh, tax policy code. The reality is the new ideas aren't coming out of OMB right now. But, and this is again what Al said, you need to have, you know, when, you, when you've got a negotiation, you're not negotiating against yourself. You're negotiating against somebody else. So the Democrats just put their cards on the table. This is what I got. Now we're looking to see what their problems are going to say. And, and but, that's why I think we should be really curious. What are you going to come up with? Exactly. And, and, Congressman Al. And if the Republicans take the position that this is dead on arrival and we're not going to do it, we're not going to consider it, instead of seeing it as an opportunity to counter-propose, if they, if they decide to counter-propose, then you've got a negotiation going that, um, that may get us somewhere. If they take a hard line that we're not going to do any of this, uh, they're giving up an opportunity to negotiate. But, but Carl Tuvin, right now, when you're looking at decreases in, in support to DOD, even though there is a budget increase in this proposal, you've got an increasingly huge number of military retirees that are going to be coming out of DOD here in the next five to seven years. Uh, they're adding to the additional cost of this democratic, demographic bubble that uh, Sean Donovan, the head of OMB, talks about. Is there some sort of reality check that needs to happen inside the administration? Are they really juggling with their own monopoly money, or is there some serious consideration being put forward to help deal with this added boom of retirees? Well, first of all, he wanted he wanted to raise some money uh, for the for DOD. And, uh, but those are going to programs like fighting the Ukraine, fighting ISIS. Those are going to very strategic points in right. our national security. Right. Not a lot of discussion in this presidential budget request about dealing with the 
the outflux of military retirees. One of, one of the things that there'll be a fight about is that they they taken Tricare instead of having three different levels of Tricare, they try to mesh them all together into one, and uh, that is going to uh, uh, be a, a thorn in their side if it's a radical change. But that doesn't show any real cost savings to the government, according to both DOD, VA, and outside veteran services organizations. No. <clears throat> veteran service organizations are going, to be, are going to be very careful to look over all of these things. Uh, they had a, a budget session yesterday at the, at the VA, and uh, one of the people said, well, how, is this, how, 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 how are we doing? And he said, well... <clears throat> You better let us read it and ask you questions and have a conference call and ask questions, and that'll, we'll get information and also prepare you for what you're going to have to do when you go to the Hill to defend your budget. And the same thing is going to happen with DOD. Congressman Al? Well, it seems to me that, that the Republicans, if they really wanted to be positive about this, they've got a plan sitting in, the, in a drawer with the chairman of the uh, Ways and Means Committee to begin to address tax reform. Uh, Republicans and Democrats will have considerable differences on how you should do that, but they've got a plan, and I think they should put one of the responses to the president would be, see, we haven't really dealt with this. Here's our plan. Dan, Dan Lipner, though, it almost seems like the, the president and his OMB chief, Sean Donovan, almost took advantage of a increasingly somewhat healthier economy, generating more revenue or generating more dollars inside the economy to put this budget together. But that's not real money. How are they going to be able to explain to Congress and middle-class America that we're dealing with real figures here. This is a real way for us to help increase the position of the middle class. Well, none of it's real money until you start collecting it. Um, and part of it is, and going back to the old cliche of well, asking why well, Willie Sutton robbed banks, it's where the money is. And you have choices where you go. And the, the, to respond to Alan's point of not raising the gas tax, the only place middle... The only place middle-class Americans have actually seen something positive is with decline in gas prices. And to go back to that point, it seems like a politically untenable spot, especially since all of the gains, and, and we now have political consensus on both sides of the aisle, all of the gains for the growth of the economy have all gone to the top 1%. So... The only place to go is Wall Street and overseas to, for raising revenue. But see, I'm going to Denise crap. You. I, I think you do go for the gas tax. I, you know, if the gas tax hasn't been raised, I'm sorry, Alan, I don't know this number, but I'm betting you do early 90s, about 93, 94, something around that number. 93 sounds right. Okay, so we haven't raised the gas tax since 1993. Gas is incredibly low. It's less than $2 in most places. If we could go for 2 to $0.03 cents a gallon, what that could do, and by the way, if we do this, it actually has to go to infrastructure because what we're finding with the harbor maintenance tax is that even though the money is collected, it doesn't go. So you actually have to get the money, and then you have to use for what it is dedicated for. Uh, so that, that is an important point which we need to follow up on. Well, if that Bob Hines, you know, there's been a large urgency, as we talked with our friend uh, Bob Lungson last week, 
for the uh, the White House, OMB, and Congress to deal with non-discretionary spending. This presidential budget request, as submitted here over the past 24 hours, uh, it almost seems that they've lost that sense of urgency in dealing with spending reductions in Social Security and Medicare, which are going to balloon deficit spending uh, over the next five years. Where did they miss the boat on this? They're just pushing the can down the, you know, down the street. That's what's going on. They're just ducky. The administration is just ducky. We need, we need to fix the tax code. It is a serious problem. We haven't done it in what 25 years. We need to fix the tax code. But Dan Lipner, why, why does it? My question is, why doesn't the Republicans, because they've got a plan. In, in the pocket of the Ways and Means chairman, why don't they start proposing a way to deal there with it? There hasn't been a partner to do it since, since Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan. And the Republican Party has moved so far on the taxes are like the plague. And it, there is no reasonable conversation to be had with anybody on the Republican side of the aisle. I challenge you to name one person in the um, in the Republican caucus in either chamber who would reasonably engage in a legitimate conversation of raising revenue in a tax debt. I want to blow through. All right, we're, we're coming up at the bottom of the hour. I'm going to blow through the uh, last break, and we'll keep this discussion going. Alan Moore. Yeah. Um, a couple of names I would love to throw out are guys that aren't there anymore. One is Dave Camp, and it was his plan that, that you're referring to, but That's right. but not the current Ways and Means Chair Paul Ryan, who's a thoughtful guy. Yeah. And 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 then the other guy that 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 came to mind also retired, and that was Tom Coburn uh, 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 of Oklahoma. Having said that, it all reminds me, sadly, of the the conclusion that Al has kind of. Uh, come to or mentioned last week that this may again be one of these times where we need to get a group of people who enjoy some respect from both parties and get them into a room and say we got to put a lot of stuff on the table because every time nowadays that you go if you talk tax increases it's all about the taxes if you talk about where are we going to spend some more money oh we all have good ideas for that how are we going to increase defense spending? What are we going to do about military retirees? What are we going to do about entitlements? And these things are all intertwined, unfortunately. And it brings us back to, are you ready for this? The old bowl Simpson. Not because their plan was so perfect. You can look at it. but And there were several. There was the Domenici Rivlin, and then there was a gang of six. There were, there were a few comprehensive ideas, and then there was the great conversation, the grand bargain, if you will, that came so close between uh, Boehner Boehner and the president. president. And then it then the didn't happen. Killed it. Pardon me? The Republican clown car killed it. No, the Republican clown car did not kill it. It was the president who came close, and then he added some more stuff. It was extremely fragile. We can argue about what, what killed it, but it was not the Republican clown car. It was a problem on both sides. They came close. They they felt the pressure. They backed off. But Alan, This is hard stuff. But, but Alan, let me just jump in here real quick. You know, 
I remember, and we all remember, back several years ago when the president would put up his presidential budget request or talk about the continuation of, of, of resolution, the continuing resolution for funding spending. There was a time when the GOP looked at Paul Ryan. Paul Ryan would lock himself in a room and come up with an alternative budget proposal. Why is Paul Ryan not locked in a room right now, or at least pushing the GOP to do the same thing he did four or five years ago? It, it, it's different times. He's now the chairman of Ways and Means, which is all the actually, more reason, though. Which is actually uh, a, a committee, unlike the, 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 the budget committee, that has real jurisdiction over real laws. He's a, but he needs to lock himself in a room with with a, a group of Republicans and a group of Democrats and some White House people and and take them out to Andrews Air Force Base, lock them up for a couple weeks and say, you only get to go to the bathroom once every seven hours. And then well, we tried that. We tried that. Hours. We tried that with the Gang of Six. We tried that with the Gang care. of Eight. I don't care. We need to try it, it again. It, you know, yeah. just because you try something at one point in our history and it comes close and doesn't work doesn't mean you never try it again. The, 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 the problem with where we are now is it's, we, we, we look at individual items and we attack them because nobody wants to raise capital gains tax on people, uh, capital gains at death, which is one of the president's proposals. But they might do something if, it's part of a larger package that includes some other things that they would care about that they would say, you know something? Down the road, if we do this, painful as it is politically, much as I disagree on principle, I think that the bigger package is worth but, it for but the good of the country. But Congressman Al, you, you, when, we, when we talked about going to these gangs of six, these gangs of eight, and some of these super committees of a whole that we talked about in previous Congresses, it largely alienated the other 500-some-odd members of Congress on the Senate and House side saying, wait a minute, wait, we might have some good ideas. How do we get included in the talk? How do we get included in the debate? It seems like we put all of our eggs in this elite group of people that are supposed to solve our financial spending and tax crisis. Well, my my view is that doing it the way the other way the, the would be the regular order way. Talk about something that hasn't worked. I mean that has not worked in spades. And so I think that Alan is right. They didn't work before, but we should try it again. I think with the partisanship on the Hill and the uh, the, the real. Disagreement between the White House and 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 the Republicans in the Congress, you've got to get out of that partisan area and begin to talk sense. Dan Lipner? Well, actually, let's reframe this a little bit. This is the largest Republican majority in the House since the 20s. As far as the power of the purse goes, this is their time to govern and show they can do it. You. The, this is not a narrow majority by any stretch of the imagination in the House, and there is an opportunity to show what they got. I suspect they won't, but I'm looking forward to it. Just like I was looking forward to the leadership 
of McConnell and Boehner and seeing if they control their caucuses, this is another opportunity. I don't think it's going to happen, but this is their chance. Carl Tuvin. Well, if they expect to uh, succeed in the 216 elections. 2016. Remember, 2016 was your term. <laughs> no, mine was uh, PC. Yeah. Something about, with Moses. Anyway, if they want to, if they, if they want to uh, have success in future elections, they have to, they have to make some compromises and they have to, to, to make some some progress. Um, the other thing is that we know from uh, talks that we've had around the state report that there are Democrats who are working with Republicans who who were trying to to, to pull these things together. Uh, you know, there was in, in the last Congress there was Camp and 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 Wyden and, and, uh, and, and before Wyden, uh, uh, the, the chairman of the of the Senate Finance Committee. But unfortunately, uh, unfortunately, that didn't go anywhere. But hopefully, Ryan and I think Ryan is staying quiet. He, I think, wants to wants to see the budget that was going to be presented before he says anything. Denise Krep. I've been to several different Republican events over the past couple of weeks, and there's been a theme that I've been hearing, which is the return to uh, regular order. Uh, more and more senators I'm hearing are saying we are going to support regular order. So that, that's been a very interesting thing. And it's coming out from the new members. Uh, there was an event with Tom Tillis, who's the new Republican member out of North Carolina, uh, who at an event yesterday not only said was he going to support the speaker to return to regular order, but he also said, and this was intriguing, that he had already reached out to eight different Democrats. Now, the it was a bloody battle for the North Carolina seat. Kay Hagan lost. So I was wondering if he was going to be very partisan and stick very close to Republicans. But Tillis isn't. So it's been very interesting to watch and see what the new class of Republicans are about to do. But Alan Moore uh, recently was talking with Governor Asa Hutchins uh, out of Arkansas, the Republican governor down there, former member of Congress. Uh, governor Hutchinson was talking about his tax deal inside and budget deal inside uh, the confines of the legislature there in Little Rock. And the reality is he walked into Democratic leadership now, then, understanding the fact that there's not a real huge Democratic uh, presence inside the legislature. But he walked into the Democratic leadership and basically said, look, we got to strike a sensible budget and spending deal. And if you work with me now to adhere to some of these cuts, I can help prevent larger cuts down the road that makes us all go back and forth. They they jumped on board and they have a now a budget deal coming out of Little Rock. It seems like that mentality's been lost on Capitol Hill. I don't I don't I don't think there's a lot of uh, relevance there of a state like Arkansas and the federal government. And I, I wanted to say something with about about what what Dan said. Yes, we now have a Republican majority in the Senate, and we haven't had both uh, uh, houses of Congress under the nominal control of the same party. Republicans have never had more than fifty five senators, and they currently have fifty three. That's a majority. They share the committees. They set the agenda. They decide what to bring up. Mitch McConnell decides how to manage uh, bills on the floor. But to get 
anything through the Senate, you need 60 votes. The challenge is, and, and it, it remains to be seen how they will do. It, the, the, the House could be 100% Republican, 51% Republican, 60%. They can send stuff over, but if you can't come up with 60 votes in the Senate, nothing happens. And as we learned or learn in the process of reminding ourselves with the the Keystone, the XL Keystone uh, the Keystone XL pipeline, which has now passed the Senate, um, the president with Democratic votes, with, absolutely with Democratic votes, 62 votes. But even that, if the president isn't on board, is not enough because the president will veto that, and they do not have the two-thirds majority that they need to override the president. So, yes, the Republicans are 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 in charge. That is significant, but it does not guarantee anything in terms of legis legislation getting out of the the uh, the Senate even if the 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 Republicans stay together and there's a lot of different opinions. Well, we, we saw in that, that party. We saw that today in the in the Homeland Security spending. You plan. have to have 60, and you have to have the president in agreement. So it takes a, a broader outreach that than simply, gee, let's pass a bill, let's pass a bill. It you you got you got three players here. They all have to agree. Let's go with regular order. Let we'll see if we can come up with a budget. There's a process called reconciliation that's part of the budget process where you can actually do big things with a majority. It's a very unusual, you know, you can use it once a year process, not not that easily. But but I still think that given the nature of the problems we have, the challenges ahead, that something bigger and broader is in the cards. But not immediately, but I'm but I'm thinking mid year when we realize, wow, this is this year is our best chance. Alan, I want to go. I want to go back to you discounting what I talked about regarding Governor Hudson. It, the reason why I bring that up is because we're seeing this more and more at the state level, where the state executive is working with the opposition at the state legislative level. Granted, it's state, but. There's a proactive movement afoot in the governor's mansions throughout the country, whether you want to talk about Chris Christie, Asa Hutchins, Mary Fallon. Uh, they're actively working with and seeking compromise with those on the other side of the aisle. It seems that even as complex as the federal budget and, and the uh, federal spending bills are, that there's a lesson that we could be learned. There's a best practice there that President Obama has not yet gotten his arms around. It is definitely true that the president has not got his arms around it. He doesn't come out of that that kind of experience, although I don't know what politician right now, possibly Bill Clinton, uh, that, that, that is alive, who, who, uh, who sort of could... could Keep keep some kind of of grasp over all the many moving parts. Um, it it's so complicated, so huge, so transcendent. Um, 
that that yeah, you need leadership from the White House. You also need willing players in the Congress, which I think there have been and continue to be. Bob, I I agree completely with Alan. I think there's an opportunity here to get something done. I don't know whether we'll be able to uh, come together, but it certainly is important that we do it as soon as we possibly can. We've really got to get this together, and I think the opportunity is clear, it's there, and I think there are people on all sides who are willing to do, to work together to make it happen. Congressman Al? And, and, and what I keep saying is the president has presented his view of this, uh, and and it's got new things in it. It's got things that that are controversial. There are things you can work with. And I think the Republicans' responsibility is not to just say no, no, no to all of that, but to present their new ideas. And we're back here live again. Sorry about that. But we are now at Tell Me a Story, where we talk about the latest news, innuendo, and rumor going around the Beltway inside and out. Congressman Al, tell me a story. Well, I'm, I'm going to repeat myself. Uh, it, it seems to me that the president's budget should be seen as the first offer. It should not be seen as – the president may have intended it as – this has got to be, but it, the Republicans can say this is a starting point, and, and th then they should add something to it so that the, the Democrats have to respond. You know, this is their responding, and that that could well start a process that might might get us out of this hole. Bob Hines, tell me a story. I'm I'm, I'm right with that. I think that there's an opportunity here, and I think both parties ought to take take a deep breath and work out some work out a good solutions. And I think they can. I don't know if they want to. Uh, there are problems on both sides of the aisle, but I think it's important that they get it done. And I think they can, and I hope they will. Denise Krep, tell me a story. Well, the interesting. Uh things the administration has done over the past 24 hours is to hold briefings with industry. I was on one this morning. And if you are part of the budget, and trust me, there are thousands of pages, so you probably are in a bitter piece, I would encourage you to reach out to the administration because I thought that was the smartest thing they've done in the past 24 hours, which is not only to release the budget, but then to arrange phone calls with stakeholders so they could explain it piece by piece exactly how it was going to impact them and what we needed to do to make sure that budget passed. I mean, so I, it was a brilliant maneuver on their part. Carl Tubin, tell me a story. Uh, well, uh, getting back to uh, Grover Cleveland. Did you say Grover Cleveland? Time, people, time. Getting back to Hillary Clinton, the one fact, two factors that are very, very important. Number one, in the last campaign that she ran for president, Bill Clinton was on the sidelines. He will not be on the sidelines in this campaign. Um, and number two, uh, I think that once Hillary Clinton uh, 
declares and, and is in the race, you're going to find scores and scores and scores of women, Republicans, Independents, and Democrats, that are going to come to her aid. And uh, <laughs> I think uh, she'll be able to, to endure. Alan Moore, tell me a story. So I want to say something about Chris Christie, but first I want to just mention that my parents told me that that when I was when I was little, the cheaters never prosper, and I always thought that was true until I saw the Super Bowl. Now, <laughs> but I'm, but back on the Chris Christie issue, um, the uh, Chris Christie has stepped into it again this week on the whole question of vaccinations and measles. Bridgegate, yep. the, 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 the famous incident, which didn't find his fingerprints on anything, but there was still this faint odor of his aftershave associated with Bridgegate. His polls are down. New Jersey's economy is hurting. Its bonds have been downgraded. The guy peaked. And he just this week was the subject of a story in the New York Times about how he loves the good life. He flies around on private airplanes, goes to Cowboys football games, goes to goes and travels around the world. Chris Christie is done. I predict he will not run. Interesting point. Mm. Interesting point. Dan, uh, Dan Lipner, tell me a story. Uh, I'm actually going to piggyback on Alan because uh, with the demagoguing of various different issues and the vaccine uh, politics, mm-hmm. uh, after the demagoguing Ebola and as used as a political tool insanely domestically, the silence and a little bit of the clown car engaging in vaccine politics with an entirely preventable disease, it's good to see a little bit of of having to pay the price for, and this is unfortunately with uh, Governor Christie, uh, but uh, Senator Paul has also uh, stepped into this as well, a, a little more gingerly. But it's worth saying that there are some of these issues that matter. And when you demagogue things that actually are life and death and play these games, that occasionally there are costs. And the political costs are nothing compared to the people that actually die when you play games with these issues and say that the vaccine, that the government is somehow has a conspiracy with these vaccines. So it, it's good to see that there are consequences. There is a fight beginning on the Hill regarding Homeland Security. The Homeland Security funding, spending bill failed in the Senate today largely because there are those Democrats that see that there were attachments to the funding bill that would roll back some of President Obama's immigration changes through executive order. Uh, Speaker Boehner has inserted himself by having very blunt and frank talks with people like Senator Ted Cruz and his kind in the Senate and in the House that are saying, look, get on board. We've are now messing with national security and public safety. Get on board. Get this through. We'll deal with immigration, but don't do it at the expense of paying for Border Patrol agents, TSA inspectors, and customs officials, at, and, and have it basically become a political issue that we cannot win. That is going to be a fight that is going to come to a head in the next two weeks, according to some folks on the Hill. That being said, 
on behalf of Congressman Al Swift, Bob Hines, Denise Krep, Carl Tubin, Alan Moore, Dan Lipner, I am your moderator, Justin Russell. We will be back next week, as we are every Tuesday, hopefully without technical issues, live from Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Bob? The place to be. You can find us on the web at www.backroompolitics.org. You can follow us on Twitter at Backroom Politic, or you can email your concerns, your uh, show suggestions, or your congratulations to your world champion, New England Patriots, just because uh, hate, hate the, Run with it next time. Run with it next time. Hate, hate, hate the game, kids. Don't hate the players. We'll be back next week. Thanks for joining us. Bye-bye, America. Thank you.